From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The southern U.S. will need billions to rebuild and recover, and hurricanes hit some Caribbean islands much harder. They're not rich, but they have resources beyond money. Well, look, the best protection is people's intelligence and their resilience. And when a disaster hits, they have to behave in ways that they can rebound. And you see that. Also, counting the cost and damage of the massive ocean surge into the Everglades. So what these storm surges are, are doing is that they're sort of bringing all of a sudden a large amounts of salt water back. It's almost like nature trying to restore in a very accelerated way the natural processes in the Everglades. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hurricane Irma was most deadly during its Category 5 rampage through the Caribbean, smashing the leeward islands from Barbuda to Antigua to St. Thomas before scalping the north coast of Cuba. That meteorological monster set records for size, strength, and endurance, records that experts predict will be broken sooner rather than later as global warming continues to heat the oceans and intensify precipitation cycles. And while Florida and the southeastern U.S. also suffered, these small island states, SIDS as they're called in U.N. climate negotiations, also have the smallest financial capacity to recover and rebuild. Decima Williams served as ambassador for Grenada and as a special advisor for sustainable development at the U.N., and she joins us now. Ambassador Williams, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. You're from Grenada, Decima. What's it like to live in a place where increasingly now one can expect these just horrific storms? I suppose it's like living in New York City, where one can expect, you know, gunshots anytime, anywhere. You don't dwell on that. Fortunately for us, we have many alerts or we've got good systems in place, but you have to change your thinking and change your lifestyle. So, as I said, the way we construct our homes, the you know, the way we understand the land... We see the, the changes right before our very eyes. But it's a healthy and beautiful and embracing environment. And people live more with the positive than with the fear. So, Decima, in what ways is the Caribbean particularly vulnerable to big storms? And what protections and safeguards do some of these islands have that might surprise people? The best protection is people's intelligence and their resilience. And when a disaster hits, they have to behave in ways that they can rebound. And you see that. I want to go back to 2004, when I think we began the series of intense categories, three, four, and five hurricanes. If you will recall, Hurricane Ivan devastated the region, particularly my own country, Grenada. 89% of all physical structures were either destroyed or damaged. 89%. 204 percent was the worth of the GDP loss. That is, everything we own, we lost it twice times over. Now, we've come out of it. And I think as intense and destructive as we have seen Hurricane Irma, we will come out of it. But the question is, did we have to go through that? And at what price will we rebuild? 
So how do we rebuild after the storm? So the Caribbean has been responding in a more intelligent way how we build. We build back better after the storms. We are doing, for example, in agriculture, we are doing climate smart agriculture. That is planting crops like cassava that endure droughts and floods and are there for food, as opposed to just planting tree crops and with the first hurricane, it's all gone. So it's a mix. On our part, we have to do things better. But I tell you, the biggest help is for us to change our lifestyles in the industrial and developed countries where the emissions of carbon really damage the seas and the environment and create this havoc. Talk to me a bit about the governance in the Caribbean in responding to these devastating storms. I mean, we have colonies. Some would say that Puerto Rico is an American colony, the U.S. Virgin Islands, an American colony, the French have St. Martin. And then, of course, there are the independent and autonomous countries that have been hard hit. I'm thinking of Cuba. I'm thinking of Antigua. How has the response to the hurricanes been different in those countries, both internally and the response from the the world outside? For those that are still colonies, St. Martin, St. Bart's, and British Virgin Islands, the metropolitan governments are probably more capable of responding because their resources are massive and they can persuade maybe their parliaments to do reconstruction in a manner that suits the colonies. In the case of the independent countries, it's much harder because many of these countries are already highly indebted in large measure because of the cost of rebuilding from hurricanes. In the international community, there are agreements that envision that and call for international support and cooperation. The Addis Ababa Action Agenda, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the Sustainable Development Agenda 2030, all make provisions for financial support. So I think that the conversation now has to get started. In the case of the Caribbean, it's very difficult because you are looking at countries that have not fully recovered from the economic crisis of 2008 and from the repeated battering from hurricanes. So I would not be surprised if special measures have to be put in place about the existing debt and the reconstructing. How do you expect these big storms will impact the tone or direction of future climate negotiations? I'm thinking there's a big meeting coming up in Bonn in November. Well, this big meeting in Bonn in November, in fact, is chaired by a president from a small island state. It's been chaired by Fiji. And the presidency has insisted that the issue of SIDS, small island developing states, will be featured across his one-year presidency of the COP. So I can assure you that there will be much attention to the small island states, not just that they are vulnerable, which they are, but that they are leading their own development with resilience. There is the green economy, which is agriculture in a particular way, energy in a healthy way, and so on. But there is also the blue economy, which is the use of the ocean resources by the ocean 
countries, which are by and large many SIDS. So I think you will see in the negotiations, on the one hand, call for adaptation support, but on the other hand, the countries are mitigating to the extent that we need to because we are not the big violators in the carbon emissions here, but we are transitioning our economies, both in terms of not depleting our resources, using renewable energy. So those opportunities that SIDS are taking themselves will be put on the table for consideration for the next year of the climate leadership. What effect do all these storms and flooding have on the political stability? Well, it doesn't make it easier for governance because, you know, there's a lot of distraction instead of, you know, worrying about building schools and, you know, getting new innovative methods in healthcare and so on. We're back to basics. And I think it can, in fact, open up uh, new conflicts or old ones. What we have seen, however, in the Caribbean region is a great coming together across political lines in the immediate aftermath. Not all storms lead to conflict. People have, yes, questioned if the governments are have done all they could for preparedness or response or reconstruction. But it hasn't led to the unraveling of the political system or the social cohesion, both of which we need for good reconstruction. So Decima Williams, you've been involved with the climate negotiations for a couple of decades now. What you're seeing right now in these storms, your home territory, the Caribbean, how surprised are you to actually see these massive storms start to to move through? Well, I recall years ago when my country, Grenada, was leading the small island states and we were arguing that what we will see in climate change if we don't act in a decisive and urgent manner is a level of unpredictability and randomness that we could not necessarily control. We've included in the Paris Agreement to strengthen global temperature rise to keep it well below two degrees. We in the islands, we've argued for well below 1.5. And I think, I'm sorry to say that, but we're proving that our arguments, our, our clarion calls were correct. That in fact, we must act urgently because the impacts are going to be first on us, hardest on us, us as small island states, but it is going to be widespread. And I think the floods from Houston to hurricanes in uh, Florida also suggest that it's not just the islands that will experience this level of climatical chaos, that it is spreading. Desma Williams is an ambassador from Grenada and stepped down recently as special advisor for sustainable development goals at the United Nations. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
Hurricane Irma left a huge human and built environment toll in its devastating wake. And it also roared through the fragile Everglades, the vast subtropical wetland known as the River of Grass that covers the southern 20% of Florida. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and part of it is a national park, but the Everglades ecosystem is now about half of its original area since people started draining it for development and agriculture in the 1800s. And intense hurricanes have also had an impact. We turn now to Fernando Mirayas Villam, a hydrologist at the University of Maryland. Professor, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Thanks uh, for the invitation. First, just briefly describe what kind of ecosystem the Everglades is and some of the species that thrive there. Right. So the Everglades is a, uh, it's a wetland. It's essentially a land that naturally wants to be wet. It's a very rich ecosystem with anything that goes from the Florida panther all the way down to snail kites and small fish and the seaside uh, sable uh, sparrow. So it's a very rich ecosystem, both from the fauna and the flora point of view. So people like to call the Everglades the river of grass. Why is it a river of grass? It's a river of grass because in its natural state, water flows as a very shallow sheet, very slow moving through the vegetation, which naturally was primarily grass until you reach the coastal areas and when the vegetation there starts to change. So if you actually look at the Everglades from above, from an airplane or from further out, what you see is a a very expanse matrix of grass, you know, with some uh, little bits of trees here and there. And and these are the the natural parts of the Everglades that still exist. If you look at the history of the Everglades uh, and particularly how it relates to development in South Florida, the Everglades uh, were drained systematically in order to develop the land. Places like, you know, Miami um, and inland and south of Miami and also north of Miami. So Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach. These were areas that actually were developed through draining the Everglades. Now, so given that the Everglades goes between fresh and salt water at that threshold, what kind of impact could that storm surge that was brought by Hurricane Irma had on the Everglades? If you think about the storm surge, it's almost like nature trying to restore in a very accelerated way the natural processes in the Everglades. Fresh water flows from Lake Okeechobee south and gets discharged as a very slow-moving sheet to the coasts. That was balanced by the coastal environment, which is the boundary with the sea, sort of uh, created this interface between fresh water and salt water. What has happened is that with all this development, we have created a number of pulses, much larger than natural, of fresh water into the coast. And this has affected the marine ecosystem. So what these storm surges are are doing is that they're sort of bringing all of a sudden large amounts of salt water back and sort of trying to recreate that interface that we have lost. Now, doing it in in such a sudden way through one of these extreme storms, Irma and others that have happened in the past, it's, of course, not the ideal way to restore natural ecosystem. But that's sort of nature sort of coming back at you in a way. What do we know at this point about approximately how much storm surge in the Everglades was experienced as Hurricane Irma passed through? We're seeing numbers from as low as three feet and as high as, as more than 10 in different pieces. It's not trivial at all. 
Fernando, Irma also brought a lot of rain. To what extent do downpours affect that fresh to saltwater balance in the Everglades, and how much could the wetlands actually benefit from all that rain as well as the storm surge? So the other part of, of storms like Irma is, of course, is the fresh water that's poured on top of the wetlands. So imagine what's happening at the same time. You have lots of fresh water falling on the wetlands and trying to get out to the coast because of the topography and because of, of these channels that are there. And then the stormwater surge bringing in seawater in. So you have these two sort of like a collision of waters. You have a fresh water trying to get out, salt water in. The dynamics of that interface and where it is between the freshwater and saltwater has likely changed pre and post Irma. For places that gain freshwater, you know, the freshwater species will tend to thrive. And, you know, there are a few species like that vegetation-wise that thrive. And, and the grasses are one example. So grasses like to be inundated. Trees, on the other hand, don't like to be flooded. Then on the other hand, if you look at the saltwater piece, species that like uh, saltwater, like mangroves, like some species of fish, will thrive. So you could see, and we've seen this before, sort of a, a redistribution of vegetation across the Everglades. Of course, Florida is known for its alligators. And at the very southern edge of the Everglades, where it starts to get pretty salty, there are crocodiles. With an increased salinity, how much more risk is there from crocodiles moving upstream, as it were? I mean, the risk is there. We haven't done that analysis yet. You know, we haven't started collecting that data yet. We'll know a lot more over the next few weeks to months. And I ask about crocodiles because, as you know, alligators are, well, they're relatively laid back in comparison to even the American crocodile, which, you know, seems to start its day thinking, I need to get a meal or several before it's over. <laughs> yes. Fernando, how have human activities that disrupt the natural hydrologic cycle in the Everglades weakened the Everglades' resilience in the face of a changing climate? Right. So the story is, you know, is fairly straightforward. If you look at a map of South Florida, or even if you actually look at from an airplane, when you fly into Miami or Fort Lauderdale, what you see is these canals that run from the urban locations to the coast. And what we actually have built is a very sophisticated network of canals that was designed to get water out of the system as quickly as we needed to, in order to not flood, in order to be able to build, make land available for development, etc. When we built those canals, we we're essentially short-circuiting the slow-moving natural flow of water that occurred before. We have accelerated the drainage, and we have reduced the ability of the system to hold the water and to be that buffer. And I think the new vision and the vision that we have missed in all these decades is that the Everglades could have been used to coexist with the urban development that took place. I think we decided collectively not to live with the water. We decided we wanted the water out. And what that has created is that now we are trying to see, well, how can we start living with the water? Now, Professor, I understand that you lived and, and taught in Miami for a decade and you recently were one of the authors of a scientific review of the progress that's been made in restoring the Everglades. Please just take a moment to give us a brief overview of why the Everglades is already undergoing a decades-long restoration. So you have this balance that we've broken or we've made fragile. So the overall comprehensive Everglades restoration plan, or CERP as it's called, 
was authorized by Congress back in 2000, and it's been ongoing ever since. The project is really more like a program because it's got over 60 large-scale projects. So the purpose of the SERP is to try to restore some capability of the system to sort of hold water in a way that you could protect the South Florida region both from floods and droughts and provide that buffer, which is what the wetland, the natural wetland used to do. A hurricane is not always going to be like Irma. Irma is just the one that's fresh in our minds because it just happened. Every storm has a distinct set of characteristics and we need to be prepared to deal with this range of variability. And the Everglades, the wetland, is our best bet to be able to deal with this variability. So we have to see the Everglades as our best friend. Professor Fernando Morales Villam is a hydrologist at the University of Maryland. Thank you so much, Professor, for taking the time today. Thanks very much. They called them right whales because they were the right whales to hunt, rich in blubber and baleen, slow-moving, and likely to float, not sink, when harpooned. These qualities spelled the near extinction of the mighty right whale, but thanks to the discovery of oil, laws to protect them from hunting and time, numbers have rebounded, and now some 10,000 of them swim in the Southern Ocean. But in the North Atlantic, there are less than 500 northern right whales, and when 13 of them were found dead this summer, NOAA declared an unusual mortality event. Ten of those dead whales were in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and researchers at Cornell suspect fast-warming ocean waters may be a reason why. Aaron Meyer Gutbrod, a postdoctoral scholar at UC Santa Barbara, is part of that team. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me on your show. So how unusual is it to find right whales as far north as the Gulf of St. Lawrence? So that's a pretty tricky question because there hasn't been a lot of survey effort up there. The right whales traditionally start off in the spring off of Cape Cod Bay, and then they spend their summer in the Gulf of Maine and Bay of Fundy and off the Scotian Shelf. And while they're seen occasionally farther north than that, it's never been considered a traditional part of their feeding grounds. But what's happened in the past few years is the intensive survey effort counting right whales in the Gulf of Maine and Bay of Fundy area has seen much fewer right whales than they're used to seeing over the summer. And so this caused sort of a brief crisis where scientists were wondering, where have all the whales gone? Is it possible that there's been a mass mortality event? And it actually caused scientists to start looking farther afield to see where these whales are spending their time in the summer. So they've just started more intensive survey effort up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And so we're thinking that the right whales are beginning to occupy, as of the past several years, the Gulf of St. Lawrence in much higher numbers than has been seen in the past. So let me ask you this. You talk about 13 deaths. Where did you find those whale carcasses? Well, that's part of why this story is so unusual. First of all, the number 13 is higher than any previous year in terms of carcasses found. And with a population that only has about 500, 13 is more than 2%. So this year, seeing 13, and then 10 of them are up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, this is completely unprecedented. So on the 13 northern right whale carcasses that were observed, what do you think killed them? What did necropsy show? Results from the necropsies aren't available yet. 
They take a couple of months. So there is some preliminary evidence of both vessel strikes and entanglement, but we're all waiting with bated breath to hear the results of these necropsies. So the obvious question is then, what do you suspect is causing so many deaths among the northern white whales and for you to find these carcasses, so many in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada? Well, the right whales are traditionally occupying the Gulf of Maine, and as a result, the U.S. has put in many protections for this species so that they won't be as vulnerable to fishing gear entanglement and ship strikes. And the U.S. has implemented regulations including mandatory vessel speed reductions. Scientists have put a series of hydrophones in the water. Hydrophones are underwater listening devices. When they hear a right whale, they can then send out a message to all of the boats that are in the area saying, hey, there's a right whale nearby, please slow down. And then the fishing industry has also made a lot of changes. A lot of the fishing lines now run along the seafloor instead of in the middle of the water, which makes it a lot harder for a whale to get tangled up in them. So these are expensive fishing gear implementations that have actually made a big difference in the rates of anthropogenic mortalities in the Gulf of Maine. Now, all of a sudden, the whales are heading up farther north where these protections haven't been implemented because the whales aren't traditionally there. So why should Canada put in the resources to make these expensive changes? But now that we've seen them up there, everybody is scrambling to figure out why and to figure out how we can put the same protections in place in the Gulf of St. Lawrence that are already in place in the Gulf of Maine. So how is this related, do you think, to climate change? Well, that's an interesting question and one that we can't fully answer, but I've been looking at changes in right whale demography over a 30-year time series, and I found that the changes in the amount of food that the right whales eat, right whales eat copepods called Calinus finmarchicus. And there's high degree of variability each year in the amount of these copepods. And in years when there's not a lot of copepods, the right whales tend to have fewer babies. So the problem is the females, it, it's a very energetically intensive process to be pregnant, to spend a year lactating. And then whether or not a female is able to have another calf quickly depends on how quickly she can replenish the blubber that she lost during her previous pregnancy and lactation. With this rapid warming that's happened in the past few years in the Gulf of Maine, scientists are wondering whether or not the warmth has caused fewer copepods available for the right whales to eat. Unfortunately, we've been monitoring copepod abundance for 60 years straight and due to budget cuts in 2011, we stopped processing these samples. So we actually don't know whether or not the Gulf of Maine is filled with copepods in these past few years. And for the non-scientists listening to us, just briefly describe copepods. Copepods, you can think of them sort of as a bug in the sea. The right whales like these copepods because they're really fatty. So they're rich and calorically intensive compared to the other zooplankton of similar sizes. So I gather you're trying to, to connect these dots here. That you're suspecting that there is, in fact, the copepods that right whales like to eat. There's more of it up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and less of it now in the Gulf of Maine. And they're moving, not so much because they're finding the water a little bit warmer, but because their food is. 
That's right. That's the theory. And at least the modeling studies that I've done in the past do not indicate that right whales are dying because of lack of food. It's much more likely that they're just reproducing much slower. The question is more, if they're searching for food, what is that going to mean in terms of the more common forms of mortality, which are anthropogenic in origin, these fishing gear entanglements and vessel strikes? So if the right whales go straight to the same places, we're able to implement those protections. However, if the prey availability changes and the distribution of these copepods change, then these right whales need to spend more time swimming, looking around for those dense patches that they need to eat. So more time swimming, I mean, you do the math, it just increases the chance of getting entangled in fishing gear. Indeed. Now, Aaron, what kind of discussions are going on with the Canadian environmental authorities to see about making the Gulf of St. Lawrence a safer place for right whales to be? Yeah, the DFO in Canada is very concerned with the huge mortality event that's happened with right whales up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So Fisheries and Oceans Canada has made some moves to implement protection on the fly. At first, they instituted some voluntary vessel speed reductions. And then a couple weeks ago, those have transitioned into mandatory speed reductions for vessels of a certain size. Canada also closed their snow crab fishery early to try and pull some of the gear out of the water to reduce the chance of entanglement. And I believe there are other fisheries that are being delayed, like crab fisheries, to try and wait until the right whales have left their summer feeding grounds uh, before they put all this gear in the water. Aaron Meyer Gutbrod is a postdoc at UC Santa Barbara. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me on your show. We head to Oregon now for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth Orion magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to submit essays to the magazine's website to put places they love on the map, and we give them a voice. The view of the Pacific coast from a mountaintop inspired today's essay. Gold Beach is a collision of old and new of fast-paced tourist community right at the southern coast of Oregon. And the um, Pacific Coastal Highway runs right through the town. So especially in summer, it's extremely busy with a lot of visitors enjoying the rugged, natural surroundings. I'm Andrea Lynn. This is my essay about Gold Beach, Oregon. The staccato sounds of rubber bullets ripping the air at the marina below unsettle nature atop the mountain. Alive with wind arias through the Douglas firs, iridescent on his hummingbirds jetting between the fuchsia flower pendants, chipmunks arguing for control of the deepest red thimbleberries, and the thunder of the Pacific. Scolding sea lion voices rise on summer's air, annoyed at the torturous deterrence methods doled out by the Chinook salmon fishermen. Afraid their catches will be disrupted, lost back to the mighty Rogue River, or worse, to the shiny mouth of a waiting sea lion. 
The fog quilt that settles over the marina in town on late summer days is comfortable to view from the vantage point of the mountaintop. The elevation atop, although only 1,600 feet, provides an expansive, sun-soaked escape from the grayness lying beneath the cloud weave blanket. If stuck beneath the blanket, a friend can be found in the whipping wind that keeps the fog pushed back, if only from the Pacific's immediate coastline. Standing in the rich, gold-dusted brown sand, it is enticing to ponder the shapes of Oregon's coastal rock formations, the sea stacks, arches, and tiny islands that make up the Oregon Islands National Wildlife Refuge. Kissing Rock, the nearest formation to Gold Beach's southern border, is a common location for conversations between strangers, as eyes attempt to bring into focus the lips carved by the rugged waves into the stone, a mouth posed in a kiss upward for the sky. Back at the top of the mountain, the vineyard teaches the critical principle of southern exposure's sacred value, and the sunflowers indicate direction. Floppy-headed compasses following the sun across the 360-degree panoramic view from the forests on the eastern peaks to the western horizon's blue expanse. The field crickets begin their music almost precisely as the sun vanishes into magenta shadows, and the resident great horned owl is left to ponder alone how long ago Gold Beach's gold washed into the sea. The old-timers in Gold Beach will tell you about the gold that is indeed in the sand. And if you do look closely at the sand, especially in the sunshine, you see the gold flecks. And the opportunity to gather up such tiny flakes is really um, cost prohibitive. But you will often see people panning for gold in the streams that run into the ocean. So gold is very much still a part of the heritage that makes Gold Beach what it is. It's almost surreal sitting at the top of the mountain looking down over the Pacific and just taking time to pause and realize in that place that when you're there, time does disappear. That's Andrea Lynn and her essay about Gold Beach, Oregon. You can find pictures and details about Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay if you want to tell us about the place where you live at our website, loe.org. Coming up, eating like a peasant, the joy of foraging for weeds. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The early 1960s saw a revolution in ideas about food and home cooking. In the U.S., there was Julia Child. But a decade earlier, austerity-weary Britons discovered adventurous foreign tastes thanks to a book of Mediterranean food written by Elizabeth David. But she wasn't the only culinary pioneer in the U.K., and a new biography, Fasting and Feasting, introduces another, Patience Gray. She was an iconoclastic artist, writer, traveler, and almost incidental cookbook writer whose Honey from a Weed inspired cooks on both sides of the Atlantic. 
Fasting and Feasting, The Life of Visionary Food Writer Patience Gray is written by one-time bread baker and pastry chef Adam Fetterman, who spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Now, Adam Fetterman, what drew you to Patience Gray and her unusual but highly influential cookbook, Honey from a Weed? There were many things. I, I mean, the interesting thing is that I had never heard of Patience until after she died in 2005, when I, I read an obituary in The Art of Eating Food magazine, which described Honey from a Weed as one of the best books that will ever be written about food. And that struck me as a bit lofty, but I was you know, equally intrigued to find out more about the book and the woman who wrote it. And then it turned out that my parents had a copy of Honey from a Weed on their bookcase that had been given to them years before and I had never noticed. And as soon as I opened the book, I was really swept away by the prose and the world that Patience described. What was it about the writing that particularly took you? It engages you from the first page, and she has a remarkably vivid way of, of describing the world that she and her partner Norman lived in. And, but it was also her approach to food and cooking. And there's a section from the introduction that I think captures that quite well. Oh, would you like to read it? Sure. She writes, Good cooking is the result of a balance struck between frugality and liberality, something I learned in the kitchen of my friend Irving Davis, a bibliophile and classic cook. It is borne out in communities where the supply of food is conditioned by the seasons. Once we lose touch with the spendthrift aspect of nature's provisions epitomized in the raising of a crop, we are in danger of losing touch with life itself. When providence supplies the means, the preparation and sharing of food takes on a sacred aspect. The fact that every crop is of short duration promotes a spirit of making the best of it while it lasts and conserving part of it for future use. It also leads to periods of fasting and periods of feasting, which represent the extremes of the artist's situation, as well as the Greek Orthodox approach to food and the Catholic insistence on fasting, now abandoned. So she was obviously way ahead of her time in, in this focus on seasonality and on eating what was ripe in the garden at that time. She was remarkably ahead of her time, and her book also coincided with a real interest in these ideas. I mean, the slow food movement was launched right around the time that Honey from a Weed was published uh, in 1986, 1987. And I think that patients captured this ethos of trying to make do with less, to paying attention to what grows in your own environment, and to respecting the soil. So, Adam... Tell me a bit about her biography. She was born into an upper-middle-class family in 1917, but the conventional middle-class life never really took with her. No, and in fact, that was something that she resisted from a very early age and travelled quite extensively for a, a young woman at that time, hitchhiked across Eastern Europe, spent a year in Germany between high school and, and the London School of Economics, where she went in 1935, she was a, a wonderfully sort of curious person and I think sought out these kinds of adventures. And the war, I think, really was decisive for her. She was raising two children on her own in a very primitive cottage. And it was here that Patience said she first took an interest in, in food and cooking. Rationing, you know, impacted everyone in the UK during the war. And I think there were certain advantages to living in the countryside. They had access to fresh eggs and certain things that in an urban area, you, you wouldn't have been able to get. However, it was a difficult time, and Patience was essentially alone with her two little children, with no electricity, no hot water. You know, water came from a well. They had no car. Uh, it was very isolated. But that helped teach her this sort of self-sufficiency that became very fundamental to the way she lived. 
Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, she continued to live in that way. You know, even after the war, when she moved back to London, she was living in Hampstead. Patients described it as a kind of village. And it was full of these marvelous people, many of whom were her close friends, architects, designers, intellectuals, writers. And she was right in the middle of that. And I think what's interesting about Patience is that to the extent that people know her, they know her through her best-known book, Honey from a Weed, which describes a very different kind of life. But that period in Hampstead in the 1950s was extremely important to her and to her intellectual awakening. You know, I think it's just an interesting contrast to the life that she would, would lead after that. Well, it also helped her writing career take off, and she published her own foreign food book, uh, Plat du Jour, which literally means daily dinners, and it had recipes for exotic sort of one-pot meals, such as beurre fondue and risotto and paella, aimed at the average British cook, and it was a huge hit. It's a remarkable little book, published in 1957. It was really the first mass-market paperback of its kind. And the philosophy at the heart of the book is really comes from the title, which is this idea of having a single dish and a, a simple salad and cheese and, and, when possible, a bottle of wine to accompany the meal. And the book was very accessible, and it was written by patients at a time when she didn't consider herself an expert on food. And the idea was to open up the post-war palate. Around this time, she meets the sculptor Norman Mommens, who becomes her lover and her partner for the rest of her life. Tell me about Norman and his uh, influence on her. Another wonderful figure in this book who, who really deserves his own biography. A Belgian sculptor had moved to England in the early 1950s. He and Patience uh, had this really beautiful relationship and, and love affair that lasted, of course, for the rest of their lives. And together they set out on their Mediterranean odyssey in 1962 when they first left England for Carrara. So what were they searching for when they headed off to the Mediterranean? I'm not so sure they knew exactly what they were searching for. It took them many years to find a place to live and work that, you know, sort of met their needs. You know, ultimately, I think they were looking for a, a life that allowed them the kind of creative expression and freedom that they were both seeking. And, you know, Norman, of course, was a sculptor and he needed to work in, in stone, usually marble. So they went to places where there was stone. Carrara, the, the great marble quarries where Michelangelo took some of his stone. The Greek island of Naxos, where they lived from 1963 to 1964, before returning to Carrara where they lived from 1965 to 1970, which is when they ultimately moved to the very southern tip of the heel of Italy and settled for, you know, the next 35 years. Now, their travels to places like Catalonia and Carrara and Naxos crystallized for patients this, this kind of thinking about food, particularly the idea of eating wild forest foods, basically weeds, and it was a remarkable immersion in a kind of disappearing peasant world. Tell me about that. Yeah, it really was. It was an immersion and an engagement with the way of life that, that Patience in Honey from a Weed says was fast disappearing. And she was introduced to the edible plants of each region by the women and children who gathered them. You know, on Naxos, she talks about daily foraging for weeds and bringing them to the village tap where the women and children would tell her what they called them and how they used them. And I think she does a remarkable job of illuminating that way of life. And that was basically the life that she and Norman embraced when they found their home in Puglia, at the very bottom tip of Italy's boot. 
And I mean, it sounds awfully glamorous, but it was not at all glamorous. It was a really hard life. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I try to dispel in the book the notion that they lived a glamorous, quote unquote, simple life, because when it comes down to it, there's really nothing very simple about the so-called simple life. And, and they had to work extremely hard. And when they moved to, to Puglia, the house Spigolizzi, the old stone farmhouse that they moved into, was, you know, in somewhat dire straits. And it took them many, many months to make it habitable. Well, yeah, it didn't have running water. It didn't have heat. It was Spartan, to say the least. Indeed. Up until the time that they moved into it, it had been used as a makeshift hut for shepherds roaming the hillside. And it's also worth pointing out that the countryside at that time in the early 1970s had been largely abandoned. The Italians themselves were no longer living in the countryside. They'd moved to the villages and towns. So for patients in Norman to take up that kind of lifestyle was unconventional, to say the least. However, they very much kept up on what was happening in the world. They, they read the papers. And Norman, in particular, was deeply concerned about genetically modified food, the impact of, of nuclear power. And in fact, Honey from a Weed Patients was, was finishing up the final edits when the Chernobyl nuclear disaster happened. And she mentions in a letter to her publisher, Alan Davidson, you know, doesn't all of this seem kind of incidental when we're dealing with these kinds of uh, calamities? There's a passage in your book that kind of describes her attitude to this. It's on page 245. Could you read that? Yes. If Patience had acquired most of her knowledge of edible wild plants from peasant women, she was well aware that most of her readers would have to rely on books and field guides, a quote-unquote slower and more uncertain method, as she put it. She pointed to Roger Phillips's Wild Food, published in 1983, by way of drawing attention to the risks associated with gathering edible plants in the face of widespread pesticide use and the fallout from industrial pollution. It was a question that she and Alan, that's Alan Davidson, her publisher, had discussed early on. They differed to some extent on whether a cookbook was an appropriate venue to raise such concerns. In a letter to Alan after reading Mediterranean Seafood, that was one of Alan's books, patients noted that he had relegated the subject of pollution to a tiny footnote on scorpion fish and that he had not really addressed the ways in which fish, especially bottom feeders, absorb dangerous toxins. Can you really say how fortunate are the English in the wide variety of fish, patients wrote, without mentioning the effect of windscale Sellafield? That was a nuclear power plant that caught fire in 1957, the impact of this plant on those in the Irish Sea. So in the end, how influential do you think Patience was in her vision, in her, in her ideas? That's the hardest question to answer. I mean, I, I think on the one hand, you, you might say not very influential, given that she's not that well known. But on the other, there are a number of food writers, many of them still around today, you know, from Ed Bear and Corby Cummer to John Thorne and Alice Waters, chefs like April Bloomfield and in the UK, Jacob Kennedy and others who were deeply moved by Honey from a Weed. I would ask these chefs and critics, you know, how, how, what kind of an influence did, did patients have on you? And they would invariably come back and say, well, it wasn't really influence. It was something deeper. It was a kind of spiritual experience. Yes. And it's not a conventional cookbook, as you say. It's a part memoir, part manifesto, full of very simple sort of like dishes. Uh, I mean, you describe one and it's just basically bread, olive oil and a smashed tomato. Yes. And it, it, there's a variation on that dish, I, I think, throughout the Mediterranean. And it's so wonderfully simple and is so delicious. And, and the, the, the very funny thing about that 
very simple dish, however, is that Patience and Alan had a real disagreement on on sort of how it was to be prepared because Patience, who had eaten this dish in Catalonia many, many times, had encountered it by smashing the tomatoes and, and oil on both sides of the bread. And Alan thought this was impossible, that the tomatoes would fall off the underside of the bread. So, you know, just to give a sense of how detail-oriented he was and scrupulous, he, he really, you know, forced Patience to, to consider... <laughs> that dish and how it was constructed. And it is one of the most delicious dishes in the world, a really ripe tomato, a good piece of bread and some good olive oil and a little salt maybe. And that was part, that was probably part of Alan's problem is that he was was trying it with hard winter tomatoes in, in London and it, it never worked. <laughs> never. <laughs> now, out of all the uh, recipes in the book, in Honey from a Weed, do you have a favourite yourself? Well, one of the confessions I have to make is that although I've I've been researching her life for 10 years, I've done very little cooking from Honey from a Weed. And I think it tends to be the kind of book that people read, you know, more than they actually use. However, it's an excellent cookbook and, and I, I have cooked a handful of recipes from it. One of my favorites actually is just a very simple pasta dish with fresh ricotta cheese. Uh, and you, you reserve some of the water that you boil the noodles in and, and mix it together with the fresh ricotta and then toss your noodles together with the cheese and this sort of starchy uh, water. And it comes together in this just perfect sauce. A little bit of freshly grated black pepper and Parmesan and, and you have a, a wonderful dish. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Adam Fetterman's book is called Fasting and Feasting, The Life of Visionary Food Writer, Patience Gray. He spoke with Living on Earth's resident Britain, Helen Palmer. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Olivia Reardon, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy from Gilman Ordway, and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.